You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. All right, church, if you would turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. In John chapter 4, we saw Jesus encounter a Samaritan woman at a water well, and we learned that she had been spiritually drinking from the filthy streams of sin in the world, and it had left her parched and unsatisfied and without true life, thinking she was alive but truly was spiritually dead. And, and yet in John chapter 4, Jesus presents himself to this wayward woman as, as himself being the true well that she can come and drink from and have true life. And by God's grace, she does. She does. And drinking is believing in Jesus. Now, in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 39, we see Jesus encounters a whole crowd of people in Jerusalem at a very important time, and he is going to proclaim the very same truth he did to the woman at the well, that from him flows a river of true refreshment and sustaining life. But, but here's the catch. Whoever is to drink in that true life must come to him alone. So with that said, follow along with me as I read John chapter 7, verses 25 through 39. This is the word of God. May his word have its way in our hearts and lives. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they spoke, who they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I came from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him, him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that, will, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we open your word and we have read your word, we've proclaimed your word, and now we seek to apply your word. But Lord, we cannot do it apart from you pouring out your living water. Lord, as your word goes forth, would it be as streams of life-refreshing truth poured out upon the hearts of those here? Lord, those who have known and have drunk from that stream, Lord, we pray that they would would be refreshed once again in seeing their precious Savior, in knowing and rehearsing the gospel, and remembering that, oh, I must go to my Savior and drink Not just once, but I must keep going to Him. And Lord, for those who are here who have never drank from Your life-giving stream, who have never come to Jesus and drank, oh Lord, would You work, would You pour out like a flood, like a flood, Lord, like a monsoon upon their hearts to know you and to love you and to treasure you in ways they maybe never have before. Oh, Lord, may we drink wonderfully of you today. In Jesus' name we pray and his precious people said, Amen. Amen. So be it. So be it. In order to feel the full impact of these verses, we have to remember that chapter 7 is taking place during one of the most important, most celebrated, and most highly attended events of the year in Jerusalem. In chapter 7, verse 2, we're told that, uh, that what is taking place in this passage is during the Feast of Booths. Some translations may say the Feast of Tabernacles, but they're the same thing. The, the Feast of Booths was one of three pilgrimage feasts when able-bodied Israelites, especially the men, were expected to travel to Jerusalem, make sacrifices, and celebrate this week-long feast. The Feast of Booths took place during the fall, and here is something so providential, and I would just say, in my own words, so cool. We are in a chapter where the, the Feast of Booths is taking place, and do you know what? In Jerusalem, right now, the Feast of Booths began on Friday. How cool is that? I thought, oh, Lord, you are just too good. Just too good. We couldn't plan that if we tried. (laughs) Just the the pleasant surprises of the Lord there. So they began celebrating the Feast of Booths on Friday. So the Feast of Booths is a fall celebration, and it it is indeed a celebration. It, It historically has become known as the most joy-filled celebratory feast of all the feasts. It it takes place at the end of their agricultural year as they gather in the last harvest and prepare for the colder, rainy season. And so it's a time when they celebrate God's presence among them, displayed through His providing for them and His preserving of them, and then looking ahead to His future presence, provision, and preservation. But even greater than that, the Feast of Booths 
was looking all the way back to when God was present with his people, providing food and water and preserving them during the years of their desert wilderness wanderings on their way to the promised land. So, so people would build, at, these, at this feast, they build these temporary open booths that have palms or, or willow branches on them for shade, and they're open air. Sometimes they're three posts or four posts, like a box, open air, so they can see, through the, see the stars at night. That You experience the full range of, of weather. It's to remind them of how they lived in temporary booths in the wilderness. And so they're living in these temporary booths and they feast with one another and sing and celebrate with one another as part of the feast the symbols of of food, light and water had very important roles because of how God had provided each of those things for them in the wilderness. So food was shared And these massive candelabras, these 75 feet high, when I was doing research, I was going back and reading actual Jewish writings and and instructions from rabbinic law and all this kind of stuff. And and they said it's it's four men would climb up, the the younger priest would climb up four um, uh, links high, uh, ladders high, 75 feet to these candelabras and light these candelabras so that at night from the temple, it would light up all of Jerusalem. And just know, just know that's going to play into chapter 8 when Jesus says he's the light of the world. So just, just start putting these pieces together. Just start putting them together. So they're, they're lighting the light that's lit up at night, which is reminding of how God led them by a pillar of fire, right? So he's leading them. They would have a water-drawing ceremony where the priests would draw water out of the pool of Siloam, which is a few hundred yards away from the temple, and they brought it to the temple and poured it out on the altar in the priest's courtyard, symbolically recalling how God had provided life-giving water to them in the wilderness and then prayerfully anticipating God's provision of life-giving water in the coming year. Water for the Feast of Booths was a big deal. Water actually might have been one of the biggest parts of the Feast of Booths. It's good for us to know that as we get into our text, our text today. It makes it even more strategic of why Jesus is at this feast and why he says what he says in these verses. Jesus A thirst-quenching Savior has come to a thirsty world. They're celebrating rain. We had rain earlier. We were praying for rain. There was a thing. We were praying for rain. I saw the rain clouds coming in. We live in a place where we pray for rain. We, We know exactly what it is to be parched and dry and to need rain. They were celebrating rain. They're celebrating having physical needs met. They're celebrating this priest pouring out water on the altar, giving thanks to God for the life-giving water, but also praying for more life-giving water. But there is a greater soul thirst that they don't even realize they have. And the only way their deepest thirst can ever be quenched is by coming to Jesus alone. This passage makes it clear that to drink of God's life-giving 
life-preserving water is to believe in Jesus as your Savior. So imagine thousands upon thousands of people in the temple would have been a major hub of gathering during this time. And in John 7, we're told that Jesus has been teaching during this time and engaging in back-and-forth moments with these gathered people, with locals, with pilgrims from other places, and with religious leaders. And here's, here's what we see. These are our two points for today. We see a thirsty world and a thirst-quenching Savior. So first, verses 25 through 36, the thirsty world. The thirsty world, if you're taking notes. Chapter 7, as a whole, including the verses we're in today, show us the many responses the world has towards Jesus. And just tuck this away in your heart, and we'll talk about it more in a moment. These are the same responses the world has towards Jesus today. I don't think it's changed. The context maybe has changed. We're not all wearing sandals and robes and gathering for the Feast of Booze, but the very same responses are happening in your workplace. They're happening in your, in your families, in your homes. They're happening in your neighborhoods. We are able to connect very quickly to what's happening here. So listen to this. Let's see the responses of the world towards Jesus. In verses 3 through 5, so I'm just expanding to all of chapter 7 for a quick moment. Verses 3 through 5, we see his own brothers, at least some of them for a time, mock him and don't believe in him. His own brothers mock him and don't believe in him. Verse 12, some people say he's a good man. That sounds pretty good at first. Like, oh, well, he's a good man. At least they're giving him something, right? But that falls short. There's a problem with that. Because Jesus is not merely a good man, is he? He's not merely a good man. He's, he's the God-man, worthy of our worship. He's the king to be obeyed and trusted. He's not merely a good man, so that falls short. In the same verse, others argue he's not even a good man. He's leading people astray, they say. So essentially saying he's a fraud and an imposter. This man is no good man. He's the exact opposite of a good man. Verse 13, some were drawn to Jesus, but were more concerned with a fear of man and how they would be rejected or maybe even persecuted by angry religious Jews. How, how sad is that? They're, they're wondering, could this be the Messiah, God with us? They're actually wondering that, could this be Him? But instead of responding in a healthy, biblical fear of God, they respond with a fear of man. In other words, people are big and God is small to them. They cared more about people's response and perception of them view of them rather than having a right response to God himself. Don't we see that still today? Especially in younger generations? Oh my, I remember feeling that when I was younger. You go to the city and start sharing with your waiter or you pray at the table 
People start looking at you funny. Oh, should we do that? Maybe we should just not pray at the table. Maybe we just shouldn't pray for our food. What are people thinking of us? What are they going to say about us? We go to church at a movie theater. Oh, isn't that so weird? What do people think about us? What are they, they going to say? We experience that even now. But even in this, they, they're wondering, is this the Messiah? But yet they don't come and worship the Messiah because they're afraid of people. Now, I don't make light of that. That can be hard. And in some cultures and places, that's a life-giving type of thing. That's a life-damaging or a life-threatening event to follow Jesus. So I'm not making light of that. But it doesn't change the fact that we're, we would rather, instead of responding to Jesus rightly, we would care more about how people would respond to us. Verse 15, some people view him as merely an impressive teacher. Isn't that big nowadays? He's just an impressive teacher. He's he, he studied so little, but he knows so much. He's impressive. Oh, he's not meant for my worship, but I'll read about him. And I'll hear what he has to say. He has good social causes and all kinds of whatnot, but I'm not going to worship him. Verse 20, some people say he's demon-possessed man. Out of his mind and overtaken and ruled by the devil. Some people, so some people think he's evil. Verses 25 through 27, some people suspiciously listen to what Jesus has to say, but ultimately it doesn't fit in with their interpretation of God. And an even greater problem is that their interpretation is actually wrong. So Jesus doesn't fit my understanding of what's supposed to be and what's supposed to happen, and so I'm just going to erase him instead of letting him inform what I believe. And then my starting place of what I believe is actually wrong. I'm, I'm misinterpreting things. In this case, this group of people said, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, that's not actually biblically accurate. That's not accurate. That was a misinterpretation of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, when it said that the, the Messiah would suddenly appear at the temple. They took that as he would suddenly appear out of nowhere at the temple. He would be nowhere before that on this earth and then suddenly appear at the temple. But their belief, they took one, they cherry-picked a passage and took that and disregarded the other scriptures that, informed, that should inform their belief, which is why we should take the whole counsel of God to inform our belief systems, right? What we believe should take the whole counsel of God. They were taking one verse, misinterpreting it, and so missing out on Jesus. They forgot verses and chapters like 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2 that clearly talked about God's ultimate leader coming from Bethlehem. They missed out on Micah chapter 5 too that talked about him coming from Bethlehem, being born in Bethlehem. So they didn't even take in the whole counsel of God. Their wrong interpretation of Jesus was coming through a wrong interpretation of the Scriptures. How often do we see that? They were misinformed and so missed having a right judgment about Jesus. But yet they thought they were so Right? Verse 30, some are so irritated and angered by Jesus, they want him to, ha to have him physically arrested. Just get him away from me, is their response. Verse 35, some people remain at a place of speculation. Instead of rightly learning from Jesus, asking of him, learning from him, who he is and what he's saying, they lean upon their own understanding and theorize about Jesus. 
And they're okay there. They just, they're okay staying with speculating about Jesus. I think we can begin to see, get the point here that the world's response to Jesus is not often one of acceptance. And I think we can know that. But when we're actually rejected because of Jesus or our attempt to proclaim Him is rejected, we can forget that. The world is confused and conflicted about Jesus. Maybe even angered about Jesus. And I think if you spend any time talking to people about Jesus, you'll see the responses of Jesus today are not that different from the responses we just saw in these verses. These verses seem to put this question before everyone who reads them, including us. How will you respond to Jesus? John does that over and over again, doesn't he? How will you then respond to Jesus? What will you believe of Him? What will you think of Him? And know this, how you respond to Jesus has eternal consequences. Jesus has already told them earlier that they are concerned about where He comes from and in an earthly sense, but He's already told them He came from God the Father, but they don't know Him or believe in Him because they, though they may be religious, they actually don't know God. In verses 33 through 34, he tells them he's going to return back to the Father, speaking of his resurrection and ascension. And Jesus tells them, you will look for me, but you won't be able to find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They think he's talking about the Jews who have gone out into the Greek islands and places outside of Jerusalem. Was he going to go there and start teaching? No, he's saying, he's talking eternally. You won't be able to come there. How, what we believe of Jesus and how we respond to Jesus has eternal consequences. These are pretty big accusations of Jesus. You may be religious, but you don't rightly know me because you don't truly know God. And so the dwelling place of God in which I go, you can't go there. The true problem was not in what Jesus did. I think sometimes, oh man, I always have just illustrations and things coming to mind and I have to parse through those as quickly as possible. Things I should and shouldn't share. The true problem was not in what Jesus did or said, or who he was, but the true problem is the unbelief of people's hearts towards Jesus. Left to themselves, the world is filled with dry and parched hearts and minds. All people are in a desert of understanding and truly knowing God, parched of true life. And what, and what makes it even more heartbreaking that we see in these verses is God has created them and given them minds and skills and ability to ponder and process and thoughtfully reason and speak and respond emotionally to God. And yet they use those very good, God-given abilities to do what? To worship Him? To reject Him. It should break our hearts when we see it. 
God's given them all that they need. He's given them minds to think and ponder and process and, and, and reason and speak and respond emotionally to Him. But instead of using those God and good God-given gifts to worship Him and praise Him, they reject Him with it. They say, arrest Him. Get Him away from me. Who is this man? He's crazy. It's incredibly heartbreaking. They need the rivers of life to pour into them and give spiritual life where there is a desert of lifelessness. Jesus, hear this, hear this. Jesus did everything right when you think in terms of mission. He didn't fail. It wasn't like, well, he just didn't have a very good mission strategy. No one was accepting him. If he would have just had better illustrations people would have really followed. He would have packed the house. If he would have just made a better mood for everybody as they came in, then you just gathered, man, thousands more, I'm sure. Jesus, if you wanted your church to grow, don't talk about sin so much. I'm sure we'd have all sorts of modern-day fixes for Jesus. Jesus did everything perfectly right in terms of mission. He spoke truth perfectly. He rightly loved. He justly acted. He even powerfully performed miracles that were unmatched. Yet he was met with massive opposition and unbelief. I think one point of application to this is don't be surprised when the wayward world responds like that to us. And don't base our success of it as a church, or don't base your personal life ministry success based off of how many people respond to you and ultimately respond to Jesus through you. You can't base your life success off of that. You can't base the church's success off of that. Now, we do pray. We pray, Lord Jesus, would you save people? Please. If there are no baptisms for years in our church, I... Is the, we do have to ask, is the gospel being proclaimed? Are we sharing the gospel in our neighborhoods, workplaces, homes, at the park, in our families, on Sundays? Are we sharing the gospel? But we can't base our success off of how many people like us on Instagram or Facebook or how many people fill up this room. From day one, we have said, we were a small church of 25 meeting outside at a park. And we said, if we just stay this for years, now we're going to pray that the Lord would grow us because we want to be a church for generations and have a gospel impact in this city and in the nations. But if we stay 25 people, Lord, let us just be faithful. That's what we've said from day one. And may that continue to be the case. So we can't base our success off of how many people are showing up or how, how many people are responding to us or how well-known we are. Jesus did mission perfectly and yet was met with massive opposition and unbelief. We are called simply to be faithful as our precious Savior was faithful to speak words of life, words of truth in love. Sometimes those words of truth confront. 
but to be people of loving truth, to speak truth in love, the scripture says. Be faithful to proclaim Christ, to make him known. And just maybe, just maybe, there may be some or maybe even many out of the confused and conflicted of the world that by God's grace do come to believe in him. In fact, in verse 31, found right in the middle of all these conflicting responses to Jesus, we read, yet many of the people believed in him. We don't know if this is the sort of belief we've seen previously where it seems like people are believing, but they're just going to, they're really not believing him. Or if this is true, genuine belief, it, it seems as if it is a little glimpse of grace, a kind reminder by John that though there may be many who reject Jesus, don't lose heart because there will be those that take joy in Jesus. I take it as that. It's a little glimmer, a little glimpse of grace. Don't lose heart. Yes, there will be a world conflicted and confronting, rejecting Jesus. But there will be some, and maybe even many, who will come to know Jesus. Precious saints, I am so encouraged because here soon we'll be having baptisms. We're going to have a baptism, and we do it in the alleyway, so it's not the prettiest of pictures, but it is the most beautiful of pictures, in a sense. Oh, we are looking forward to that. John Calvin, the old reformer from the 1500s, says this, We might have thought that Christ preached to deaf and altogether stubborn persons, and yet some fruit followed. And therefore, though some may murmur, and others scorn, and others slander, and though many differences of opinion may arise, still the preaching of the gospel will not be without effect. So that we must sow the seed and wait with patience until, in process of time, the fruit appear. We must sow the seed. Oh, don't lose heart. Saints, don't, don't grow weary of doing the good and faithful work of making Jesus known in a, in a confused and conflicted world. Don't grow weary in scattering the seed of the gospel. Don't grow weary. The reality is that that confused and conflicted world truly is a thirsty world. They may not even realize it. They don't even realize how parched and dry they are, but they're thirsting. And they're trying to satisfy that soul thirst in the things of this world. And it will never satisfy them. And so the reality is, those who, are, who we just read about, who are responding to Jesus in these ways, they're not, I think we would be quick to say, man, those are enemies of God. Those are our enemies. And so then our heart temptation is treat them like enemies. And that bleeds into our home when we have wayward children. That bleeds into our workplaces. We're just going to treat them like enemies. That they're hard to me. They, they're oppressing me because of, I'm a believer. They're opposed to Christ. They're enemies. Now we do know there's a deeper reality of being enemies of God. But I think when we consider what the truth, what's being drawn out here and from John chapter 4, the reality is they are a thirsty world. It's a thirsty world we live in. I think it serves us 
when we can encounter the wayward of the world, the lost of the world, the opposing of the world, and yet still recall, they're not, they're not an, merely an enemy of mine. They are so thirsty and they don't even realize it. And I have, I have a pitcher of living water. When we think in terms of that, I think it changes our approach and it changes, it tenderizes our hearts. It changes the way we respond to wayward children. It's in, it tenderizes us, and I think in a sense it postures us to, be patient, to patiently endure with wayward co-workers, with wayward family members, with wayward neighbors, whenever they ridicule us or wrong us. It's a thirsty world, and they're thirsty. Lord, would you give an opportunity for the life-giving water of Jesus to go forth to them? That, that changes our, our approach and our heart posture towards that. Jesus has already said shocking things to this crowd, but in verses 37 through 39, what he says and when he says it actually makes this the most shocking moment of the entire chapter. He looks out over this soul-thirsty crowd. He knows they're soul-thirsty. He knows why they're responding. They are soul-parched. Dead, needing life. And he looks out at this soul-thirsty crowd in front of him and declares the only place they can find true, life-giving drink. Verses 37 to 39, our second point. The thirst-quenching Savior. The thirst-quenching Savior. The water-drawing ceremony that took place each day at the Feast of Booze was the most anticipated and celebrated moment of the feast. They had a water-drawing ceremony. In the Talmud, which is the, the Jewish book of rabbinic teachings, I read this little line about the water-drawing ceremony. Listen to this. Whoever has not witnessed the joy of the water-drawing has never witnessed true joy. This was the greatest moment of the feast. In the morning, as the sacrifices were being prepared, the high priest would lead a, a solemn parade of priests and people from the temple to the Pool of Siloam, a, hundred, a, couple, a few hundred yards away. And the priest would be carrying a water pitcher, and many people would be accompanying him. And we're talking, we're talking probably thousands of people. There would have been this instruments being played, scriptures recounted, and psalms sung. When I was reading the instructions in the Jewish text, <laughs> I, 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 I kind of laughed to myself because I thought, you know, there's always so much debate on instruments and all that kind of stuff. I'm one for all instruments. And I tell you what, the Jewish people were ones for all instruments as well. In fact, they had a line in there. They were debating on what instruments do we use. Is it just a flute? Is it this? And like, they said, it is fitting for all instruments to be brought out. Symbols, and they start listing them, just eh, bring it all out. That was this kind of celebration. They're bringing everything out. They're going to the river. They're going to the pool of Siloam, and they're following this priest, and he's carrying this pitcher, and there's, they're singing. There's scriptures being recounted and psalms being sung, scripture passages, most likely like this, Isaiah 12, 3-5. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Passages like that, passages like Numbers 20, they would have definitely been recounting of how God provided water from the rock in the wilderness that Moses struck. You remember that? It struck it twice and water abundantly poured out. It broke through the rock. They would have recounted passages like that. Numbers 20. As the water was drawn from the pool, they would then walk back and return to the temple. And the priest would make his way to the top of the large altar in the courtyard of the priest. And he would stand on top of this huge altar for all to see him. And he would lift up the altar or lift up the pitcher of water and and people would be singing out. They would be crying out with joy. There would have been prayers asking from the priest, thanking God for the previous water and rain from generations past and from this season. Thank you for the life-giving water you've given, from the life-giving water you gave from the rock in the wilderness. Thank you. And then praying, God, give us life-giving water for the next year. Provide for us. Be with us. Preserve us. One historian believed that at that moment, as the waters hold up and they're, they're praying and crying out to the, God, to the Lord, that singing would have broken out and people would have been yelling out Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O God. Save us, O Lord. The scene is incredible. Trumpets blasting. Oh, when they're done, it, was, it wasn't... They, it, this went on throughout the night. Trumpets blasting, instruments were played, thousands of people present. John is painting the picture for us when he says, on the last day of the Feast of Booze, the great day. It is in the midst of this type of scene and atmosphere that your precious Savior, Jesus, courageous and bold and filled with the truth of God, stands up and what does he do? It didn't say he just, he just quietly said. There's a reason why he cried out because there are thousands of people and instruments and people crying out. And so he stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You can imagine the response of those around Jesus. You can imagine it. The claim he was making by saying this at a feast where the people were specifically calling to God for water. If you're thirsty, if you're truly crying out for water, you're crying out for water, and if you're truly thirsty, come to me. Come to me, he says. 
Come to me and drink and overflowing out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus, the wellspring of living water, calls to the thirsty soul. And I love it. This is the same crowd that just berated him and will continue to berate him. This is the same crowd who some of them, maybe many of them, may be present not long from now when he's being yelled at and spit upon and carrying his cross. And yet he says, anyone who thirsts, come and drink. Come and drink. The precious Savior we have. Oh, He amazes me. He amazes me. I hope He amazes you. When, when I hear that, when I see that, when, I, when the picture is painted for what would have been happening on the last day, this great feast and what he does, I just say, oh my. Oh my, I, I could never do such a thing. I'm so glad you're willing to, Jesus. Jesus. The wellspring of living water, he calls to the thirsty, so come to know his goodness that whoever should come to him and drink of him by believing in him, they can taste of the refreshment of eternal life, a never-ending stream of life poured out for you and in you, overflowing out of you into eternity. A life-giving stream like being poured out on dry and thirsty ground, except for the ground is our hearts. It's amazing. Brian Chapel, a pastor and author, says this, Jesus' loud invitation to the thirsty was a startling, even scandalous declaration. He was claiming to be the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness. The rock from which life-sustaining water flowed. But Jesus was also looking ahead to the day of Pentecost. When in the last days, He would pour out His Spirit without reservation. Both enabling us to believe and confirming that we do believe. Oh my. Just like the water poured out upon the altar at the Feast of Booths. So they would lift it up and then they would pour it out. Jesus pours out His Spirit upon those who believe in Him as the great high priest of God's people. And just as the water on the altar symbolized God's presence and provision and preservation of His people in the desert wilderness of the Exodus to get them to the land of promise, so the Spirit is God with us spiritually providing and preserving us as we live in the desert wilderness of this world on our way to the promised dwelling with him for eternity and he promises that wellspring of life will never run dry saints he has given you what does that mean it means he has given you all that you need in him you may not think it at times But He has provided all that you need in Him. 
And he takes care of those physical things. He promises to be with us, to care for us. He gives us a family who can help accomplish the mission and care of Christ, right? But for your hearts and minds, he has provided everything you have needed. His presence, his provision for you in salvation and his provision for you in strength for today and his preservation of you like water in the wilderness. He pours out life upon you and in you today on your way to that promised home with him forever. Isn't that good news, precious saints? Isn't that good news? Oh, oh my. That stream never runs dry. I love it. It's just pouring into you his life. Opening your eyes, softening your heart, giving where there's dry and cracked ground. In my backyard, my backyard, I conceal it in a way. In my front yard, I try to water that my once a, once a week watering and things. My backyard, not the case. Don't go in my backyard. Don't go back there. The ground is so cracked, so dry, so parched. And it causes everything to shift, doesn't it? I love it. We sang Jesus' firm foundation and Pastor Rob made that application. We're not standing upon shifting ground. We're not standing upon shifting ground. The Lord has given life there. The Lord is our foundation and He is furnishing or or flourishing life upon us through His life-giving Spirit. Doesn't mean we don't wrestle. We live in an already not yet. Right. We're to seek His care. We're to seek His provision through the power of His Spirit daily. Doesn't mean we don't need. It doesn't mean we don't pray doesn't mean there's days I don't feel sad and weary and heartbroken and it's tough. But it does mean that he promises to keep pouring out over and over again as we come to drink from him. Right? That's the invitation for those who have not drank and those who have, don't go to any other stream. You keep drinking from the same stream. You keep drinking from our precious Savior. And not only, so not only does he pour in, but he overflows out. Right, doesn't he say that here? Does he say that? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Overflowing out of us, pouring out upon others, the life of Christ. The offense of this is amazing. This passage is incredibly offensive. The Jewish people standing up, give us water, God. And Jesus says, then come and drink from me. It's offensive. For those who are wayward, it's offensive. You mean I can't drink from what I want to drink from a relationship to be satisfied and to have life in? No, you can't. I can't be fulfilled and satisfied in the job and my 401k and all this kind of stuff and my education and my that relationship and all. You just keep going. No, you can't. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, then you have the only place you can go. The only place that will quench that thirst is me. You have to come and drink of me. The offense of the gospel is that you cannot drink that living water. There is no other way. There is no other stream. You cannot drink of that living water unless you come and drink from Jesus. 
C.S. Lewis, who was an author and wrote a series of children's novels, The Chronicles of Narnia, captures this beautifully. I don't necessarily agree with everything of C.S. Lewis, but I also don't agree with cancel culture, so I'm not going to cancel him out. But I love this illustration. A young girl named Jill is in the land of Narnia where the king is a lion. And the lion is written in such a way by C.S. Lewis as to represent Jesus. Upon seeing the lion, she is at first frightened and runs away. She runs so intensely away from the lion that she eventually falls down and finds herself lying face down on the ground, weak and weary and incredibly thirsty. And here's what is written. The birds had ceased singing and there was perfect silence except for one small persistent sound which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. But her thirst was very bad now. And she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment and sooner than she expected she came to an open glade and saw the stream bright as glass running across the turf at a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush toward to, forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the first became, her thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she would be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Drink. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away a while while I do? Jill said. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Do you eat girls? She asked fearfully. Oh, I think, I think he captures this line so well. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, Kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, 
or as if it were sorry, or as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. She went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Isn't that a beautiful capturing? There is no other stream. Like, I'll just go find another stream and drink from. Then you will surely die. Are you spiritually thirsty? Your heart parched and weary in need of God's life-giving water. To taste of that life-giving water. To come and drink. You must come to Jesus. And you must come to Jesus on His terms alone. You must believe in Him alone. By faith, you must believe in Him and recognize Him for who He is and submit yourself to Him. And so then drink freely of His thirst-quenching, life-giving stream. Precious saints, if you have tasted of that stream, we don't go anywhere else. We keep going to Him, the source of that stream, and we keep drinking from His stream. We keep drinking freely and fully of our precious Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.